0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Sex Ed for Sex Med, a premier source of evidence-based information and education of sexual medicine for students, for residents, and the public. Today, we're delighted to have Dr. Sharon Parrish, a professor of medicine in clinical psychiatry, a professor of clinical medicine at the Weill Cornell Medical College, also, she's the director of medical services at the New York Presbyterian Hospital, the Westchester Division. Also, she's been a past president of Ishwish and has made countless contributions to, to sexual medicine. Thank you, Dr. Parrish, for coming on. We really appreciate your presence today. And um, today we wanted to discuss uh, sexual medicine education in America. Um, We've seen a couple of uh, articles coming out, and I'm, I'm aware of some research that has um, surfaced re- regarding uh, by medical students regarding the uh, sexual medicine curriculum at medical schools and, and listening to some of the, the frustrations of, of what's going on. And so I uh, Dr. Parrish has a, a very unique background in that she uh, knows and has written a lot about the medical education. And And uh, Dr. Parrish, I'd like to start my first question on a, a, a paper that you helped write, uh, of which all of these will be in the show notes uh, so you know so everybody knows. But it's it's on the um, best practices in North American in preclinical medical education in sexual history taking. So this is really directed towards uh, medical students. And I was wondering if you would just talk about the goals of this uh, paper.
1: Yeah, no, thank you. First of, first of all, thank you for this wonderful opportunity. I think this topic is, you know, in talking a little bit about our plan for this, this topic is an important one. And, you know, there's a lot of glitz going on in the literature and on Instagrams and um, a lot of videos and interviews and so forth around sort of like, contemporary medical issues around women's health and menopause and so forth. But like getting back to the basics of how clinicians can actually learn, you know, is very, very, very important to maintain attention to that as well. So starting with the beginning of our, you know, our, our agenda of what we wanna cover, we we're, were talking about a paper that was um, published by a student, the, uh, Elizabeth Rubin, Dr. Elizabeth Rubin, who's now a practicing OBGYN. I believe she's still in Portland, Maine. But at the time, she was a first year medical student at Brown and very interested in sexual health. And I think it's important to state this because from the medical school point of view, a lot of the work um, has come like kind of grassroots style. There have been students or champion faculty who have said, you know what, at my institution, you know, there's some lip service to this or there's some core stuff being taught, but it's not enough. And, you know, I really want to delve into this further. And so she was at a, um, as a student, luckily, was able to have the opportunity to attend a summit. It was actually organized by Eli, Eli Coleman, who was, um, was at University, he was at Minnesota. I think it's University of Minnesota in Minneapolis that had a sexual health program. And they organized a summit around the time when this paper was first conceptualized to look at a a number array of domains in sexual health education and we were in a working group around developing best practices uh the group of people that were co-authors on this paper and liz rubin as a first year student was very enthusiastic and we talked about what outcome we wanted and she wanted to take the lead as the first author so she was a student when she started this process i think it took us a little while to finish it and she went on to you know, become a, a faculty member. She's an um, OBGYN and she has some areas of specialization. But the purpose of this was to look at the core, the most basic elements of education in North American medical schools in the preclinical years. And th- we'll talk about how that does apply to now and doesn't in, just in a couple of minutes. But it was to look at um, what were some of the guiding objectives or principles that were important to accomplish in an ideal preclinical curriculum meaning the first 2 years so they were things like just for students to understand why it was important to learn the basic skills of taking a history doing some preliminary transition to counseling so that's like sexual health education you know and learning the like way to approach explaining about informed consent pros and cons, risks and benefits and, you know, advantages and disadvantages of different approaches to managing problems. And then to have the opportunity to think about where this fits into clinical encounters in different disciplines. Um, now, we we hope as students moved into later parts of their training in the that are more, um, you know, the, that are, they're in their rotations and in their clerkships, for example, in urology, OBGYN, medicine, that that like knowledge specific content would be included, but this was about the core skills that could apply across all disciplines in medical medical education. And we outlined a collection of things that um, we we called skills. So it had to do with setting the stage, the type of verbal and nonverbal communication, how to use um, the, the language, Um, had integrated with other types. I mean, we were talking specifically about sexual dysfunction, but what were the types of things that we would cover in a sexual history? And we called that the six Ps, and I can get into that further if you wish. And then we had as a a core element of this paper was a script, right? So what were the elements included in the six Ps? What were the items? And then a script was an appendix about how you would walk through an actual interview. Um, And then I I think we can go into the details of any of these that you like. Um, and then the final piece was going over the types of methods and the types of evaluation that would be optimal for students learning content and skills. So I talked for a long time, but I could I could keep going. But I think
0: <laughs> I'm, I'm <laughs> you know, on
1: what um, pieces you think are most interesting about all of those different uh, components of the paper.
0: Well, I think the six P's were a, a big point um, because it was an illumination on what had already been done by the the government, I think.
1: Yeah, Uh, yeah, yeah. Actually, let me say one more thing about the papers. So maybe this is a good time to say it. We we talked about this a little in our prep. Um, This idea of the preclinical versus the clinical skills applied to the way medical education has been structured for many, many years, right? That students had two years in the classroom, you know, where they did their basic science, you know, the basic scientific foundations, biochemistry, you know, uh, you know, learning the basics of microbiology, anatomy, and so forth. They dissected their cadaver. And then in the second two years, they would transition to clerkships and be more hands-on. And the model of this curriculum was based on the tail end of that time. And I think medical schools are moving more enough, like a fluid type of um, and, and more um, interactive type teaching curriculum uh, earlier on, meaning like you're not just getting basic science, but you're actually going out into the field and thinking about the application much earlier on in their training, even in the first or second year, and those didactic so-called years are being shortened in many schools to a year or a year and a half. So one of the challenges is getting this in in a systematic way, and rather than hoping or relying on it to be integrated until the, the, the melding of didactic and clinical activities in the clerkships that happens earlier. And so it's a little harder to think how this gets implemented with much shorter Time that's actually d- designated for classroom learning. That said, I think the principles and the skills and the techniques for teaching can be translated into any clerkship in a sc- and, and any clerkship that combines didactic and experiential learning in a thoughtful way, as long as they make a decision to use the content. So, you know, I know I'm talking to students, but I'm probably also talking to some faculty who are thinking about curriculum design. Or even um, postgraduate training programs, you know, for residents and even practicing clinicians. So, so going back, so I wanted to make that point. But going back to your question about the six P, should we should we go back to that? I think that yeah, was- yeah,
0: let's let's yeah. cover that briefly because I think that is uh, core content of.
1: So the six P's was uh, the, was based on a model called the five P's. And you can find this all over the place in in the literature, but it was the U.S. Center for Disease Control, the CDC's five P's on sexual history taking, sexual you know assessing sexual health, et cetera, and sexual problems, and the P, P it's standard for partners. So asking people who are their partners and learning more about potential risk assessment, what are their sexual practices and getting like specific as needed to look at risk, past history of STIs, and then protection from STI. So that's three and four, and then pregnancy plans. So the focus was more about the kinds of sex they were having, what kind of risk assessment needed to be done, and either prophylaxis and even treatment of STIs and then pregnancy. And it didn't have a lot of or any focus at all on sexual function and sexual satisfaction or perception of safety. So we talked about this a lot in our working group and felt that students at a minimum needed to be exposed to the idea of of some of this, and we called it the R6P the plus. And I think these, um, one of the, I think one of the most important contributions of this paper, and I, I'm glad you asked me about it from my perspective. And Liz Rubin, the first author, was a real champion of this. She felt very strongly that student, students, it was important they learn this. And that included trauma and violence, um, support. And I think this was just the beginning for sexual orientation and gender identity. And just the beginning of that, when this, you know, this was published in 2018 and started, the work was started a year or two before that. So we did a long process in looking at this, um, then the concerns and problems that people might have. And concerns might not be like a true sexual dysfunction, might just be like questions and ideas about sexual function changes with age, you know, changes with pregnancy and so forth. And then actual distress or, around sexual dysfunctions with actual problems and how where the role of satisfaction and pleasure fits in. And I thought this was a really interesting thing because at the same time, the WHO was taking a very active role in a number of their like, larger consensus meetings. And I went to one of them as part of it to like actually define pleasure and sexual wellness, not just the absence of dysfunction as a basic human right. I don't know, that's another whole area. It wasn't exactly <laughs> explicit in our paper, but that was the implication. That satisfaction, wellness, pleasure was also like we you didn't just not need to be like traumatized and in pain, but that this was a key to quality of life and overall health and well-being. And so um, when we teach, I, you know, when I have teachable opportunities at any level, I remind people that these are all domains of sexual health, wellness that we have to assess in sexual health. And the paper does have a table which goes over the actual questions for PLUS. Um, as well as the script, which is in the appendix for how to take, like, work through a case or a patient.
0: I think you also talk about uh, self-preparation, didactic, role-playing, discussion, you know, ways of uh, training the students to effectively communicate skills, uh, their communication skills, for for talking to people about sexual medicine. That, that seemed to be a big part of of the paper uh, for both the first and second year?
1: So I think there's like, you know, for like in the paper there were sort of the objectives, like what content and types of skills people needed to learn. And then the second piece or kind of like um, domain of the paper was how we should break this down conceptually in terms of what a person should learn in the first or the second year. So in the first year, um, it's really just like learning how to intre- you know, how to introduce the topic, how to get the basic elements in, and integrate these different elements that we we're talking about, and, and ideally in the six Ps. And then the teaching methods for the first year might be just watching and learning what an interview looks like in a cl- in a class, reading about how this could be, you know, there are there's. Um, nice pieces in chapters, book chapters, and in the literature on how to take a sexual history, um, learning or reading a script, and then maybe um, seeing a demonstration or actually practicing with peers. And then reflection and feedback on how these communication skills um, can be learned and what it feels like. And then perhaps making a video. We, we were very granular about this and possibly having the opportunity to use a standardized patient and get feedback. And the video and the standardized patient would be combined with observation and feedback from, either and or peers or supervisors or faculty. And then as you move along in your training, the idea would be that you would um, get the basics, but you might move on to more advanced communication skills. So that could include a more detailed sexual history. And we then would teach more about learning things like the sexual response cycle, desire, arousal, orgasm, and pain. I ask about each one, things like sequencing, biopsychosocial contributors, Learning to ask how people have addressed it, what kind of treatment they want, giving informed consent about. And I use that word really and meaningfully meaning, what are the benefits of different types of approaches to addressing sexual problems? What are some of the downsides or risks, some of the challenges? And also integrating um, the standard core communication skills around using motivational and patient centered interviewing. So, integrating the patient's perspective, learning what the patient feels uh, would be hard for them. If I say to someone, you know, why don't you introduce a lubricant into partner sexual activity? Someone might say to me, a patient might say, well, if I do that, my husband's gonna think that he doesn't get me excited anymore. I can't do that, you know, because he'll be insulted, right? So how, it's not just here, use this lubricant. It's getting some feedback from the patient. We start to teach, the idea was those kinds of skills would be taught. And here we might use some of the same type of um, role-playing, practicing in pairs, Um, And perhaps a more in-depth evaluation with video feedback or in an actual OSCE where you use standardized patients and you might even get evaluated and scored, um, not only receive feedback and something more summative about your skills is an actual exam, which would be skills training and assessment, of course, feedback. The other thing is to bring higher level skills in some of the more sensitive areas like trauma, And at that time, um, you know, LGBTQ was just being taught. I mean, not that we didn't know about it, but really robustly. I think people have come a long way in the past five years about making sure that's included. I mean, now students call everybody they, you know, and before they know the person's preferred gender, which wasn't true five years ago or six years ago when we did this work. So that was, you know, learning how to deal with those kinds of things and um, pairing more sophisticated content with more,
0: um, upping the stakes in terms of the, about eval- the, the feedback and the evaluation. When does, um, the student, the, the paper talked a lot about, um, training communication skills, but obviously to, to, to communicate, people had to have a real grasp on foundational ideas in sexual medicine, like you, you mentioned, like the, uh, the sexual dysfunctions, the categories of sexual dysfunction, and a number of things like that. When would the student get that knowledge that they could use in these communication skills?
1: Yes, yeah, so I, I think what we said kind of as a disclaimer in the paper, because we we felt um, it would be hard to include everything, and maybe, maybe we shouldn't have disclaimed, we should have tried to tackle it we we were more general right and i think this is the point you made in our pre podcast discussion that like it wasn't exactly clear when they should learn how to assess a desire problem what are the biopsychosocial contributors how to assess genital arousal difficulty erectile dysfunction orgasmic delay orgasmic dysfunction the role of different medical factors and you know the psychosocial cultural and sociocultural and gender based factors that inform experiences and i think our disclaimer was kind of like well this is not going to address exactly what where that content should be taught. But there's the implication that the basics of what a sexual response is and the domains like biological, psychological, social, cultural, medication, medical problems, substances would be taught in tandem with how you take the history, right? Like you can't teach someone how to do a history without saying, well, you're going to ask about each of the phases and you're asking about each of the, so I call them the phases and the domains. So the... Phases are these, you know, desire, orgasm, pain. I guess pain isn't exactly a phase. The domains are biological, psychological, cultural, and so forth. And you have to give some of that information as you teach the history. But we also said, as part of our disclaimer, was that it it would probably be more likely getting more in-depth about how you actually address and manage erectile problem. We hoped would be managed in clerkships later on or sexual pain in women would be addressed and managed or taught in clerkships like OBGYN, for example. You know, men's sexual health is actually interesting. Unlike women's sexual health, there's no one clerkship. We, we chat, we start, we, I remember this discussion. There's no urology clerkship. Maybe they do a fourth year elective, but there is an OBGYN clerkship. So then it leaves it to sort of like the medicine, is it in the medicine clerkship? Is it in the surgery when they get an implant clerkship? Is it in the, you know, and we, we, acknowledged that that was also an area that needed more attention. Like how did content get taught in clerkships beyond like just framing it for people? You know, yeah. we also didn't feel that the first and second year didactics, given the amount for now, remember, we're getting we can if we if I can shift to one other point, sure. which is that in two five years ago when the paper was published or six years ago, right, 2018 and then when it was written 2016 to eighteen. There were two years of curricular time. Now there's a year and a half or last. And so you've got to, you're going to get very limited hours. So you have to decide like, are we going to just teach these skills? Like we've been talking about frames, domains, techniques for taking the history and counseling, integration of patient centered techniques, including all the six Ps. Or are we going to actually teach like, what's the differential diagnosis for low desire? And our feeling was that the frames, and the domains that's i we didn't put that in the paper but it's a word, it's a it's a way that i often when i'm giving a lecture on this i'm sort of i hope i'm not lecturing now but no, we like, i once i get going i just like to yeah, talk, yeah. talk about it so yeah. I, I use the idea of frames you know domains frames being like desire arousal orgasm pain domains being like the biopsychosocial domains across across phases of the sex response cycle And then the six Ps are sort of like the content. I think that's the most important thing to get into the fundamentals. And that's what we focused in in the paper. Now, um, I think it's another question. And maybe as we transition to talking about other issues in education is like, where do you teach the differential diagnosis of sexual pain in medical education? And because clerkships, there's even less defined, consistent standardization of like teaching like the differential diagnosis of sexual pain or a diagnosis problem around desire or or how to diagnose desire or how i mean i think again erectile dysfunction and male sexual problems are even more problematic because there's no clerkship right and medical schools and medical leaders have not thought that carefully about how to standardize that education they sort of leave it to the clerkship leadership at each individual school right has that been your understanding and your yeah experience?
0: Is, are there people that are actually do, doing these things at, at their schools?
1: I think there's variability. And I think some of the recent publications that you were referring to, I mean, we, and some of the work that you and I know is starting to be done again, like new surveys of schools and finding out at, at a, a newer pass at like this, like where are the core skills being taught now, especially now in the, the, the era of restructuring curriculum, to be less in the classroom and more in the field with more integrated teaching of principles and skills and hands-on, where are the skills being taught and where's the content falling and who's responsible for it? You know, and I think like, I know, for example, I'm at Cornell now and I used to be at Montefiore. I know like there are our leaders in the OBTYN clerkship, you know, leading the education there that are interested in this. So they're making sure it's included. But I don't know if, medical school, Z, Y, or R, you know, <laughs> I mean, X, Y, Z, Z, Y, R, U, Q, Q, Q P, um, whatever order you want to think of them. I don't know who's there in you know, OBGYN and whether there's standardization. And I think we could get really like down to the bottom of this and talking about the LCME and ACGME, right? right? So LCME, for those of you that don't know, is the Licensing Organization for Medical Education the I think it's Liaison Committee on Medical Education, and the ACGME is the Crediting for graduate accrediting council for graduate medical education. They do have like requirements, but they're so general, and yeah. they haven't evolved to being more specific. So they don't prescribe either the skills and like the core frames and di- domains I was talking about, or the content for clerkships, as much as we in medical in sexual health and medical education would like. Such that we're sure that every OBGYN clerkship is teaching the same thing about how to assess sexual pain, as an example, or every medicine clerkship is teaching the same thing about how to assess a man or family medicine who comes in with erectile dysfunction. We don't. the The, the requirements are are so general that the and and I don't. I'd have to take another look. And that's one of the things we're doing with this new survey is how well people are matching with contemporary guidance from these accrediting organizations.
0: What um yeah, and, and the students say, you know, th- that's not happening very well. What would you tell a student who's interested in this field, but isn't getting uh, the meat, so to speak, in the, uh, at the school? What, what, what would you encourage them to do?
1: Great question. So one thing is like, you look at this paper, right? And you yes. can, I, there's a number of ways to phrase this. You can do grassroots, you can supervise up, you can organize and request, you know, or you can, you know, and one thing that, like, I've seen in a couple of places that I've been, like, I was at Einstein and Montefiore before, as I mentioned, now I've been at Wild Cornell for the past decade, is that um, when students are aware of the possibilities, often they'll organize their own opportunities, right? And that's not to say that that's how it should be optimally done, but I think in the first two years, looking at a paper like this and saying, hey, you know what, we're going to go back to, um, you know, the people in charge of our curriculum and say, hey, you know what, we're not learning sexual history taking in our patient, you know, we all have our different names for this course, like patients and, you know, patient where they learn how to talk to patients, learn how to communicate. We have, we call it, you know, the doctor and the patient one and two here, but every, I mean, every school has a different name for that. And say like, we want more training on sexual history taking and we'd like to learn more about counseling or that you can do, you know, try to help get that included in the core curriculum stuff in the first year or two, one to two years. And then um, what I do see students doing, like I was see here for, for a few years, there was groups of students organizing an evening seminar series to fill in some of the gaps that they felt they hadn't learned in their clerkships. Um, they can also go, you know, students get out on clerkship committees and say, hey, you know what? We feel this should be uniformly taught in our medicine clerkship, in our OBGYN clerkship, in our psychiatry clerkship, and can play a role that way. So, I mean, I think those are at least some basic things that they can do. And I know students have been quite proactive. What I think is unfortunate is that students actually have to do that, right? Like, so this third year students here put together this lecture series. And it went on for a few years, but it's not happening this year. As far as I'm yeah, as far as I'm aware, because it requires a stu- group of student champions, a student or several. But you know, they got together and put together an eight-session evening series on some of the the content areas and they invited some of the faculty who did this to come and did workshops. Um, but they shouldn't have to do that, they should be able to rely on the clerkships having it in place. Um, but in these times of transition, either you know, organizing to ask for things in their clerkship or just saying like we are going to ask for this ourselves until it's available or it's not available you know there are there are approaches you can take
0: i know um, the, the the student group in chicago that i mentioned a little while ago um they organized seven seven uh, schools organized a, a group called the forum the medical student forum and they've done they've brought in people they have uh i think um some good names in the, in the field, uh, uh, Lawrence Stryker and and uh, Rachel Rubin, all are, are helping these students uh, with uh, meetings and becoming educated. And like you said to your to your point, they're doing it all. And so, uh, I you know, I, I didn't models.
1: mention this earlier, but I did do a couple of sessions. So they have they to elaborate on this further. So it's. the it's a student forum of collab a collaboration of student medical group me- medical student groups across it's not just one school um there's kind of a champion school i think it came out of lauren striker's um program and she was the like one of the the prime you know as faculty members who assisted them in putting this together but they invited other schools the, the one that i did was on a sunday morning right and lauren was at we were first we gave like a Little talk, and then we were panelists. There were panelists, and they were then they had some practice online practice opportunities where students worked in small groups across, you know, big geographic domains. To they were in different parts of the country to work together in small groups. So it was it was a very creative was it during the pandemic, too? <laughs> yeah. That particular later in the but I've done a few, but the, the but that is a, an amazing innovation, but. You know, you have to say, like, on the one hand, isn't that incredible and faculty are available to help or, or to give a lecture or be on a panel, but they should be like learning how to suture or tie knots. Why aren't they getting this? You right. know, and why do they have to go outside their ordinary schedule? They're busy enough, you know, and I think those of us like putting together papers like this or the group that's getting together to resurvey and try to feed it back to leadership is to say, wait a minute. We need to do more to have this be standardized and integrated in the regular education.
0: I wanted to bring up uh, uh, two other papers you've done, um, and switch the discussion sure. talking to and about medical students, but you know, clinicians that have gotten out that that didn't get anything, um, very very little in their training, and are now practicing. You did. You worked with some of your colleagues in in the group Ishwish. To bring up a, a process of care, POC, um, and, and I, would you mention those for for that group? What's sure, it?
1: sure. Uh, so you know, and that's not to say the students couldn't gain from this yeah. and learn a lot about like how to take these skills we're learning, like taking a sexual history, asking about phases, asking about factors or domains like what are the, what's a more advanced history and so forth. Those papers do cover that and you could learn from those and then integrate it into what you have to learn as you learn the skills. So everyone can learn, but these, are, these were targeted toward practicing clinicians. So I think we, we talked specifically about two, but there are several. So the first one is um, the International Society for the Study of Women, Women's Sexual Health. Um, and it was a process of care for the identification of sexual prob- concerns and problems. And it was actually designed for non-specialists, although specialists could learn from it too, in my opinion. We always can go back to the basics to enhance our skills, right? I think any specialist who's um, humble and thoughtful will say that. You're <laughs> <laughs> phenomenal. <laughs> um, you never can, it never hurts to go back to the basics. Um, I hear that from my Pilates teacher all the time. I'm like, <laughs> I know how to do that. No, nope, stop, <laughs> adjust your adjust your posture. Well, we need to do the same thing in our practice, right? So the idea is that, um, you know, we want to figure out across all disciplines, no matter what kind of work you do, how to encourage, that was the purpose of this paper, people to identify sexual concerns and problems, whatever window you're coming from. If you're a rheumatologist, if you're a cardiothoracic surgeon, if you're an orthopedic surgeon, a family medicine physician, what. Should you be doing to identify sex? this was for women, but I think it's for any gender, right? It, it, the principles I think are, are it was because it was this first, but the principles are universal. What what do we have to do to identify a problem? and how can we process understanding what it is to decide how to get the person to where they need to be to deal with it? And there were a few key principles in that paper and I, I, I it has a very nice algorithm. Which you can look at which walks you through the steps i don't think we have time to go over the whole thing although yeah. i'd love to yeah so <laughs> yeah. the idea would be that you want to screen and you don't need much in terms of skills learning to screen and it could be from the perspective or the ubiquity of your domain so if you're a orthopedic surgeon doing hip replacements or hip repairs you could say you know many women who have had pain in the hip or have arthritis or have just had surgery with a hip replacement, notice that there are changes in their sexual function, maybe their comfort during sexual activity and so forth. What about you? Or if someone, if you're a gynecologist, you need to take care of menopause, many women during menopause notice changes or et cetera after cancer treatment, or you can just simply scream. You know, it's an important, and, and the idea would be normalizing and universalizing the inquiry. These are routine questions. We ask all people, either in my primary care practice or in my, my, in my procedural practice, about sexual function because it's important to you and learning about your health. And then using a screening question, and there are some core skills that everyone can do. Everyone can get a story. So tell me about it, right? And you may use a few guiding techniques like phases or factors or domains, like I told you, and then learn the story, empathize with it, reframe it as a what you heard and a problem that can be dealt with and then figure it out can you manage it within your skill set do you need to reschedule the person cuz you could but you don't have time or do you need to make a referral and learning some like a few areas for referral that makes sense for your discipline if you could do that much you do a world of good for women and we do go into what's more vague. those are core skills of so really core right identifying getting the story managing or referring if you did that, it would be a huge contribution and change. And students can learn that any, at any level. But if you wanted to go into more depth, it talks a little bit more about what more advanced skills might be of taking a history. And we go into talking about some of the most, even the most um, non-specialists could learn some basic treatment skills. And I'll, I'll give an example, like encouraging communication from partners. This is more advanced, but it's still basic. And recommending a lubricant for sexual pain in increasing vibratory stimulation or enhancing stimulation with age and maybe learning to prescribe low dose vaginal hormones. So that was like, those were like basic skills as an example, Cor- advanced, but, but easy to incorporate skills. That's that, that was the nitty gritty of that process of care. I don't know if you have any additional questions.
0: No, I, I think that I, I'm so happy you explained that, but it's, uh, I wanted to make sure that the, the people listening that were practitioners knew these resources where they could go and get these basic um, core skills. And again, uh, these papers will be in the show notes so people can review this.
1: I think that one I wanted to explain because I think the message yeah. I want to give is that if you could just ask, you could universalize that and maybe ubiquitize it. Get the story and show empathy and willingness to listen and figure out what you could offer that person. You might say, I'm not sure, but let me let me figure this out. Or here's who I think you, you know, like that would be the world of difference for so many patients. This, there are a few more papers, I won't go into the details because again, fortunately they've been in the show notes. The ISWISH process of care for the assessment and management, it has, you know, that's the gist of the name of hypoactive sexual desire disorder and something called persistent genital arousal disorder and genital dysesthesia, it's a combined diagnosis. There are two other processes of care. You and I didn't talk about that one, but I know you know it's available. Those are two other processes of care. And there's also a paper on treating vulvovaginal atrophy with different types of therapy, including the availability of uh, low dose hormones and androgen low dose androgen and estrogen hormones. So we have a number of processes of care, but the ones I think you were most, you know, focusing on were the identification of sexual problems and the assessment and management of low desire or hyperactive sexual desire.
0: And yeah, I was, really, I was,
1: org was trying to
0: shoot things. for, for people that just were entry-level stuff, you know,
1: those two. And if you wanted to, um, find the papers, if you go to iswish.org, I-S-S-W-S-H under publications, all of our papers with a little explanation are listed and there are others too. Okay. But those are the most, most basic or the most key core, whatever. They're not so basic sometimes. Well, well, I
0: I feel like I could just, we could just talk forever. You just are, you just such a wealth of knowledge, but, um, I, I want to thank you for your time today and, and how important it's been, I think, to our listeners to really t- try and get a, a grasp on some education because it's just, uh, it's it's not forthcoming in, in our medical schools. So, um, but but thank you so much for, for doing this for us.
1: You're welcome. Uh, good luck to everyone at every level. And uh, I'm glad that we have the opportunity for this dialogue. I really appreciate this opportunity. It's an honor and pleasure.
0: Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sex Ed for Sex Med. Please find the articles used in today's discussion in the show notes for further study. Also, you will find the contact information for our expert today.